Greetings, friends! Welcome back to the Film Alchemist Podcast, the show where we look at movies we love, break them apart, to find out what gives them their magic. I'm your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my gaunt, robe-wearing, hand-and-knife-wagging, bowl-cutted child who says weird things and co-host. Wait, am I two people? It's just one, Alex Dandino. You're the avatar for everything that's ruined my male perspective. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, as always, Got if it. you like the show, and we hope you do, please take a second and leave us a rating and review, uh, especially on Apple Podcast app. That helps us out a lot. For those of you that have been doing it, we see you and we thank you Very so much. Very much. Thank you. You can see our faces uh, on YouTube. Our channel is The Nerd Alchemist, plural with an S at the end. So let everyone know about that. Click subscribe. See these uh, faces. Also, you can find us on all your socials. Give us a shout out. Reach out to us. Uh, we love to hear from you guys and connect. In uh, that or the email address, you can email us, filmalchemistpod at gmail.com. With your ideas for movies you'd like to see covered, guests, double features, new stuff, whatever you want, uh, we want to hear about it. Also... As you guys know, every December we stuff your stocking, so it's a good way to get in now, get in early, and try to make sure that your pick is chosen for our December, uh, you know, present array. All right, guys, on to uh, our October sojourn through the the dark abyss of horror. Uh, we are doing a horror movie every single day this month, so we got a lot of great stuff. As you guys know, all of the screams, you will have heard all the Candymen. All of uh, Halloween, and we decided we're also adding in uh, The Shining and Doctor Sleep. Kind of a more unusual double feature, right? It's it's a long gap between sequels, a movie that felt like it couldn't have a sequel. Uh, there are books involved, yes. angry, hurt feelings. There's a lot going on with these movies, right? So <laughs> right now, we're going to start with The Shining. Um, to me... This is one of probably the top 10 most iconic movies uh, of my lifetime. I remember vividly being a child, and I think I was about 10 or 11, and my mom uh, coming home and just being so excited to finally share The Shining with me. Um, and it's one of those movies that it felt weird. It felt uncomfortable. Like, the colors were an assault on my young mind, right? This was the 90s. I'm like, why do things look this way? Uh, and it just gets under your skin, and it's never quite left me. I've come back to it often throughout my life. Alex, initial opening thoughts on The Shining. The Shining is a movie that I saw on... My parents were not like that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> my mom loved to show me, like, the classics of horror. My parents were <laughs> not into that. Um, yeah. I... My, like, my parents... Like, to give you a frame of reference for, like the, like, the time frame that I saw this movie, like, I saw this probably when I was in middle school or high school. <laughs> my parents, for instance... Uh, on their first wedding anniversary, went to go see Alien by accident. They thought it was a movie called Aline because it was spelled wrong out front <laughs> on the marquee. <laughs> Some young girl singing her way from poverty to the uptown, right? And <laughs> my parents walked out, I don't know, like 30 minutes into the movie because they were so freaked out. So You're that's like, like my quotient for like how my Ripley. parents. We're in trouble. <laughs> so I came to this movie solely on my own. I think I saw it when I was like, I want to say like sixth or seventh grade, maybe. 
mm-hmm. um, much later than I much later than I had seen other movies that were like wildly inappropriate for me to see. Um, <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was my initial thought was like, "Wow, that was really long." Jeez, like why? Why did this well, take it, so long? It, it is a strange film, right? And that it has aged better with me than a lot of horror movies, right? Yeah, a lot of stuff that I loved in my early years. Now you're like, all right, it was kind of schlocky gore, you know. It got you, but then once you've seen it, it, yeah. it wears off. This movie feels the opposite, and now hitting the stage of my life where I'm actually a parent. Yes. Uh, this movie just hits you all in all kinds of different directions, I, I was, right? I mean, that's, like, the thing that I've noted the the most. Like, ever since I saw it, obviously, I've seen it now, like, at least a dozen times on my own. Yeah. Just watching it, multiple viewings, just because... You know, you go through film school and then you become like a young adult and you want to watch it again. You haven't seen it in a while. You just catch it on TV. This is the first time I've seen it, though, since I was a parent and just a totally different take. Um, yeah. Totally different vibe. And because I've I told Andre, actually, uh, we were talking about it this morning because I watched it the other night and I was like, I have a completely different understanding of Jack Torrance now, like mm-hmm. completely different, like the sympathy I feel for Jack Torrance is so much different than like when I was younger and be like, <laughs> well, that guy's kind of a dick. Jeez. What's right. What's yeah. like, why did he whip the kid around and all that kind of shit? And now I'm like, he just wants to get his fucking book done. Jesus Christ. What's wrong with yeah, that? You're like, I think I'm pro hitting children. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But, like, did he make a point? The Alex Dandino <laughs> take. No, uh, it is. This is the thing though. Right. So like I was telling you, I, I this is probably the most I've gotten up for a pod. Yeah. Um, so I've done a lot of things. I mean, I read The Shining, the book. I read the fallout and the anger Stephen King has for that. He prefers the horrendous made-for-TV miniseries with uh, what's Stephen Weber. Weber. Weber from Wings. From yeah. Wings. And if you ever get a chance, I think Joe Blow Movie Clips has it, where it's just like his best season. Of oh, no, I've watched that clip. Actually, it's funny you bring that up. I watched it today because I was just yeah. like – I watched the movie last night, and then I like to always watch uh, the movie clip stuff before we do the shows because um, it's just a good refresher. And there was like best scenes from the Shining TV movie. I'm like, oh, I'm watching this Warlock. Like, I mean, I remember watching it when it came out because Stephen King had done so much. This is how it was meant to be. And I read the book, and to be fair, the cool stuff about the Shining, in typical Stephen King fashion, feels like it doesn't come until. The book's like two thirds over, yeah. right? There's like a long chapter where it's just Jack Torrance like, oh, I have to take care of this wasp nest. Yeah. And think about my time as a teacher and my running with a troublesome boy. But it does. The thing is, but but Stephen King's like his beef with the film, right? He says that he doesn't like this version of Jack Torrance specifically because Jack comes in already essentially a murderous madman dad. Right. And watching it today, I think that's actually bullshit, right? On two levels. Because one, when you read the book, Jack Torrance is not a sympathetic, nice guy, right? All the book does is add the fact that he also punched a student and was an alcoholic drunk driver who may have ran someone over right. on top of breaking his kid's arm and being a piece of shit. Right. And then at the end, he has a nice like, oh, I'm a good guy again. Right. But I watched this movie really closely today. To try to to see if I think Stephen King's right. And I agree that the overall tone of this movie is so cold. But I actually, I mean, this uh, I, I'll admit this to you. This felt so shockingly close 
to scenes of a marriage. Like this to me was more realistic to married life than marriage story. This yeah. conversation, like the scene when, <laughs> and we both write or not well, but we write the scene when she wakes him up. Right. And uh, you know, he's like, you know, Hey, would you want to take me for a walk? Oh he's like, God. yeah, I should get some writing done. And she goes, you know, he's talking about he doesn't have ideas. She's like, well, you just got to get in the routine. Keep doing it. He just gives her this fucking perfect look. He's like, yep, that's it. That's it. And takes a bite of the bacon. And I was like, that yeah, passive, snarky bullshit that is littered throughout the movie. That is so yeah. accurate to marriage life sometimes. <laughs> that scene alone encapsulates to me, like, <laughs> all the frustration you would have in a marriage is right there in that scene, which is like, well, he's like, well, I should probably get some writing done. Like, hey, I'm trying to be responsible, use my time wisely. And she's like, oh, cool. Well, um, you know, it's probably just what? How's your ideas? He goes, Got lots of ideas. They're not really good ones, which is something you and I have talked about, like, all the time. Whenever I'm like, hey, I think I have an idea. Like, never mind. It sucks. Yeah. And then, yeah, she's like, well, just do the work. Get in the routine. And you're like, enough with your, like, positivity, all right? Let me just stew in this. Because <laughs> that's really kind of what it is. Like, there is just, like, this earnest Hemingway like bastion of like all right I'm just gonna go in there and bleed on the page and she's just like <laughs> hey better get to it you know it's it's just right it's so unnerving yeah it's but but that kind of stuff right so what I don't agree with Stephen King on right is one I think he overvalues how empathetic he made Jack Torrance in the novel but in this movie I think what, because this is the thing, in a novel you have, especially Stephen King, you have all these extra hundreds of pages to just bullshit and spend time, right? So what this movie does really well to me is this is a family that hasn't recovered from the moment it broke, right? Yeah. So you see it really well when the doctor's in the apartment at the start of the movie and Wendy's kind of explaining. she It's one of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the movie, actually which is her with a smile and her obnoxiously unflicked ash on her cigarette. That really pissed me off the whole movie. Neither here nor there. But she's explaining to this doctor that Jack came home and, you know, busted Danny's arm. And he's like, you know, well, Danny did spill his papers. And Danny, you know, it's all this kind of blaming Danny and trying to pass that Jack, you know, oh, well, you know, it was only because he was drunk and only because Danny did it. And now he's sober and it's all good. And you can see it as she's putting on the mat. A lot of this movie to me is the the mask we put on and what happens when you can't hide anymore, right? Like this movie, what it does is it puts these characters so close and they all know exactly what's going on that it's really hard to hide. So her explaining that to the doctor, I was like, that that to me is the movie is that the, the phase of happy-go-lucky husband and wife adventure, we just skipped that shit. Yeah, this is they're try they're taking one last swing, a massive swing, to say, hey, can this work? You know, it's like you you see that meme on the internet, right? Like, here's two dumb people who are in a bad relationship, and then it's like the sham wow guy, like, let's slap on a baby. That'll work. <laughs> that's right. essentially what this movie's saying, right? Well, and and to me, it rings very true of an an honest kind of the end of a marriage. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely one of those like it's always something that struck me ever since I saw it the first time was like the, I've never understood the relationship between the three of them in general, because yeah, everything is felt always feels so foreign. Like mm -hmm. Jack is such a off putting father. 
and such an outs like I remember actually the first time I saw it I thought Jack was the stepfather I had no <laughs> idea yeah because like again like a lot of the time like the first time I saw it I probably came in right as like right as Dick Halloran shows up so I never saw any of the preamble or any of that other stuff so I remember watching it the first time being like, oh, wow, this is about like a stepfather dealing with like even as like sixth or seventh grade. I'm like, wow, this is pretty intense. And then as I got older, I watched it like the whole way through. I'm like, wait, that's his actual dad. Like he doesn't. That's his actual dad. That's Wendy's actual (laughs) husband. Like he treats them like they're just foreigners uh, in his like on his on his own soil. It's so weird. Right. But but I think that that really works well for me in the movie because the book also goes into this area. But it's more, you know, Jack thought he was like this great guy, player, alcoholic, all these troubles, right? This is a man, right? (laughs) And I can speak to this from experience. There are some guys that just aren't cut out to be dads, right? You do it for whatever reason or it's an accident. And then once the harsh reality hits, um, you'd rather go be an alcoholic and a selfish, you know, narcissistic. I'm supposed to be someone famous and important. And you guys are the reason I'm not that, right? Jack is constantly hanging upon them. Like the, the famous scene when he's marching Wendy up the stairs. To me, that is the truest Jack Torrance we see in the movie. When he's, you know, you guys always want my fucking time. He he has this fucking notion in his mind that they're the reason he's not writing the book and all that. That, that dad, though, exists everywhere. That's yeah. there is There is a part of being a parent where... All of a sudden, you're like, I have all this shit I want to do. Mm-hmm. And you're like, all right, so I have a wife and that you have to maintain a marriage, right? Or else it disappears. And then when you have children, children need you to fucking survive, let alone doing the work of emotionally growing them, right? Yeah. And so if you are a person who is not achieving enough and you're running to substances and this and that, they become a really good scapegoat for that's where the time that's important right. is going instead of all of his other failures. Totally. And I, I think that really the, – the alienness of him, right, is when he's interviewing and he's like, oh. Because that's – you know, King's like, well, Jack Nicholson is so crazy looking. And I was like, that's because he is this fucking broken man on his last leg trying to be the subservient employee when he thinks he's better than all of them. Right. Trying to be the husband to a wife he doesn't love anymore and blames for his failures. And a son who Fuck. has become yeah. this fucking avatar for all of his failures and even, you know, his own father's failures. So I think him being, you know, almost – he plays it like Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black, right? Like he's in an Egger suit. Like that's kind of the way he feels in this movie. Yeah. And that works for me. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think that – I think Jack Torrance coming into the hotel and being essentially like a husk of a man is such a huge and like really telling beat to, I mean, you, you could not know anything about the shining walk in and see that this is a broken guy who's about to be isolated for six months with his family. Like you don't even need to know the content of the movie to know that is a recipe for fucked up shit. Like, yeah, right. I mean, again, (laughs) you need, you need know nothing about this fucking story to know that that's a horrible idea to send send a man who's already kind of broken down and like kind of on his last leg with his family like every scene with the three of them you can just see this contempt in his face like the drive up i noticed it i mean like he's just like 
well, you should eat in your breakfast, like that kind of thing. And yeah. I feel like, and to be fair, we've probably all felt that way. Driving I've absolutely felt that family. way. Like yeah. I thought, I felt that way with my wife. Like there's just like stuff like yeah. that. Like I'm like, well, I know you should have eaten. Like, I don't know what to do. And like yeah. that pressure of everyone like depending on you and me, like you being sort of the caretaker for them as well as this huge house, like the house itself, like the hotel itself becomes almost non-existent when you realize the amount of work that has to go into keeping Wendy and Danny safe, alive, happy, healthy, so on and so forth. It's such a fascinating thing to watch now as a dad because I do have a lot of sympathy for Jack in ways that I never well, thought I would because it's like such a piece well, of shit to like cave. Yeah. And like when I was younger, I'm like, who just caves like that? And like gives his will over to evil spirits, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm like, <laughs> good Lord. I would probably just, if I was stuck up there for six months with my kid and my wife, I'd probably be like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Whatever you want. Yeah. Anything. Well, it's also weird watching it this year because you're like, we all did that for a couple months. <laughs> Some of us still you're are. Like, we, we made it out. I wasn't running around smacking them about, you know, and getting like croquet mallets and shit. Yeah. So like, I think I did better than Jack Torrance. You definitely did. Uh, there's a scene though, that really hammered this thing home for me with Jack. And it's one of those scenes I always thought it was a throwaway, right? Because like we said, this movie is very long. And I've always been like, you could chop 30 minutes out of this easy. But a scene that I would have chopped that really meant a lot to me today was um, him throwing that fucking tennis ball. Yeah. Because that comes after he pretty much is like, I can't spend time with you and Danny. I need to get work done. So he goes to his luxurious open room with the little table and typewriter. And just alone... He's having the most fun we see him have the entire fucking movie just throwing a ball to himself when he has a child and wife that would probably be ecstatic to spend that time with him. And that small scene tells you so much about where Jack and this family is, right? Because you pair Jack's relentless downtroddenness, right, with Wendy, who is this almost to the point of naive criminality right with her amount of optimism about stuff that's happening and then danny's a whole other thing but yeah. i i i think the critique though that jack is too much on the edge and is already a murderer is, is wrong right like i think if they had just stayed in boulder he doesn't murder his family right but i do think that family is dead in its own yeah. way i mean in any way, it, like in any form of story, Jack Torrance and Wendy Torrance are no longer married at some point, whether yeah. by whether by death by, from one of them or by the fact that they just hate each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I so I, I don't know. I, I thought this time watching, I was like, I really just think Stephen King wanted his own stuff, you know, and it's like, I don't think it rings true. And if we're being really, really honest, that movie is so much better than that book. And it's really not close. I mean, to me, the story... And I love Stephen King, so don't come at me on sure. that. Sure, I mean, like... The I, Shining I, movie is so much better. The sh Again, like, this is something that always... Like, I have a, one of my... One of my work friends is a huge Stephen King fan, reads all his books, has a lot of opinions about movies, and we'll talk about it, like, we'll talk about it when we talk is about... Is it Doctor me? We don't work together. <laughs> but particularly, like, adaptations of Stephen King movies, like, he... Wasn't a huge fan of the It movies. He didn't think they were as good as the book, which I'm like, well, I mean, that makes sense. He yeah. hated the Doctor Sleep movies specifically because it did not properly adapt. There were a lot of key moments, as he said, left out. But I got to be honest, like this to me, 
the shining kind of cuts through a lot of that like Stephen Kingness that sometimes gets lost. Yeah. Anywhere else. Like yeah. it's such a weird, like I, I'm not sure how to describe it, but like it's weird. Cause this movie's almost three hours long, but this is like, to me, the most streamlined narrative you could get out of that book. Yeah. Well, what, what he does is he takes this somewhat, you know, just a guy like pondering the failures of his life. That's like, an enormous amount of the opening of that book is just this kind of getting in the groove of here we are doing nothing. So let's ponder everything that's happened. And what the shining does is it really just finds that the essence of what happens when you rip like the, one of the ghosts in the overlook hotel is the Torrance family as a unit. Yeah. This, this family is done and everything they're doing is an absolute fucking charade. It's a charade. Yes. So the the notion that I need to see Jack pushing Danny on a swing and that's going to make the horror of this better is just that's the difference between novels and movies. Right. Is you can just show me Jack trying really hard to be, hey, I'm everyone's neighbor dad. Look, I'm real cool. You know, I mow the lawn and have Reeboks. And I'm just like, Ugh, he makes me feel like he wants to chop parts of me off and put them yeah. in Tupperware. I actually think and that tells me everything I need to know. Right. Like, I think isolating them at the Overlook almost normalizes the issue that Stephen King had with Jack Nicholson being cast in the first place is like, you're not going to put anyone else besides Shelley Duvall, who look also looks crazy for a lot of the movie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you're going to be able to normalize a lot of the you're gonna be able to normalize Jack Nicholson within the setting simply because you're not placing him with anyone else. You're placing him in almost pure solitude, like or at least the attempt of which. Yeah, I I just find it not an amazing critique on what is and is not good with the movie. Let's talk about the Overlook itself as a setting. What really stood out or was working really well for you about the Overlook uh, as the setting for this story? I mean, again, I, I haven't read the book, to be honest with you, uh, but... I think for me, the overlooks vibe is all it's always the vastness. Like I've, you never see the exit. I think that's a really important thing about this movie. Um, well, always seeing windows, right? It looks like an aquarium. You're always seeing windows, <laughs> but also even more importantly, again, like I've, I never see an exit. I think that's a really important aspect. I'm not sure why, but like I never see an exit sign anywhere. I never see the way. To, I mean, I know the way out. I've seen the way out earlier in the movie yeah but i've never seen anyone leave like until the end when you see the door open to the maze which feels like a right. non-reality right exactly you know what I mean? and that's so yeah exactly <laughs> it's so trippy so i mean i think the vastness of the hotel itself the inability to escape it so to speak is so yeah. important because there's always another room there's always another corridor there's always something else and the geography of the it's interesting because like for a thing about the, the um, for a story that takes place inside a hotel to me the most interesting part is how lit what little importance is paid attention to the geography of the hotel itself mm -hmm. like there's the gold room room 237 and the torrance's apartment those are literally the only three places you really need to know like maybe the, the kitchen and the kitchen yeah. maybe but the kitchen only comes in a, uh, the kitchen factors in maybe once or twice but like for instance yeah the game room we never go back in there i don't even know where it is in the hotel like i couldn't fucking yeah. tell you there's all the 
there's so much that goes into these three hot spots and i guess the great the great room where a lot of the shit happens so these four hot spots where a lot of scenes work are really important but i mean overall the really fascinating thing to me is like how little i care where things are like I don't yeah. care how far the great the gold room is to the Torrance's apartment. I don't care how far two three seven two room two three seven could be down the fucking hall from their apartment from the staff from the staff quarters. Wouldn't know, wouldn't care. It's so yeah. unimportant where things are because the important thing is you're not only getting lost in the location, you're getting lost in the story itself. So you don't care how far away things are. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing is it's it's this really interesting mix of huge opulent rooms and then really claustrophobic tight you know longer tracking a lot of tracking shots in this right a lot of which uh, steady cam yeah so i think a lot of that plays into the the hotel itself but i mean it also starts at the opening when we fly over the lake and through the mountains yes where you feel the 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 opening with the the helicopter shots over the pond and mountains with that music gives this film such an inevitability right where yeah. you're like and this is it's one of those kind of hard things to do in horror is that every horror movie you're like i know this is gonna get super bad and someone's gonna walk away like you know they, we it's one of the harder genres where you kind of know right like when you watch something like let's say knives out the fun is how do you you know someone did it but who is the journey right in right. horror it's sometimes a little more you already know what's happening and this movie does a great job of just setting up this inevitability of all of the terrible things we're about to experience and i think the tracking shots do that as well right where yeah. when we follow danny through the hotel i feel like it's instead of a shot that's showing us the hotel and making us feel more at home it feels disorienting right it feels like going down the rabbit hole and we are just following this child and all I feel is, this is so wrong. I should not be with this fucking kid. And so that by the time the ghosts show up, you're you're. It's not really like a shocking horror. It's I fucking knew it, and that yeah. is its own kind of scare to me, which I really dig. Yeah, I mean that's like the inevitability of the tracking and of the steady cam in this movie is a ghost in and of itself because you don't know what it actually like. You think it's a camera. But it could be anything like that, yeah. I think, is really important. Like so much of what we see and so much of what we're so much of the information we're given with what we see is uh, ghostly in and of itself. Like mm -hmm. and again, it is so much weird. Like <laughs> one I noted today, too, was the uh, the bathroom scene. Jack Nicholson's reaction is so bizarre. <laughs> Like this guy, he's just like, God, my wife and kid, finally I'm about to get this nut. He is his like Cro Magnon, just like grin. <laughs> oh, there's a strange lady in here who just attacked my boy. I'm about to get this nut. Like that is what's happening with you. <laughs> that shot's they, so good. They do such a good job of like holding on his expressions in these movies. Like there's that great push from when he's like looking out at the snow while they're like that's mm -hmm. a great that's a great uh, look. But then, yeah, this like just continuous push back to the shot of him just like yeah, like this weird. I have theme. a theory about that. I have a theory about the long holds on Nicholson's face. Which we'll get to a little later, but yeah, I think that 
the overlook is the setting right where everything is kind of a smooth track which makes it feel at that point it's more formal uh formalist right where we're not interrupting right when you do something like jason Bourne, it's supposed to feel like oh, oh i'm getting punched too oh man karate you know it breaks you out of that mold while it's trying to be realistic it's also letting you know you're watching a movie this one feels different right it feels voyeuristic and predatory which i think the best horror films do the other thing they do all the time is they're constantly making us feel like this place isn't real to me because of the long dissolves, yeah. right? The the really long dissolve shots, it makes it feel like we're just teleporting around the hotel constantly. Yeah. Because it's weird because they do that, but then when they do a time jump, it's this hard fucking smash cut to a black title card, right? And so it's, it's just this, ju- you know, like this push and pull. This slow, like we're gently being floated through this nightmare. And then all of a sudden, Tuesday. (laughs) It's like, Jesus Christ. So I I think the Overlook itself, though, it's it's funny because so many people make the Overlook such an enormous part. And I don't I don't know that I focus a lot on the hotel. Right. Like we watched that uh, documentary room two, three, seven to get ready. And a lot of people focus a lot on the hotel. And, oh, Kubrick's a master. He would never have so many continuity errors and blah. I don't think that there are unintentional continuity errors. I think by slowly moving things around, he's letting you know that you are broken from this reality, right? So as we're gently gliding through, like, you know, a chair moves behind Jack in one shot. Like, it's there, and then they cut back, and it's gone. That is just a subliminal. Without really having to pay attention, you know something's off. You never feel safe and set in the overlook right right? those people take it to the fucking extreme where it's like oh there's a skier but they don't have skiing it's obviously a minotaur myth (laughs) you know or oh he obviously filmed the room landing so or the moon landing i think those people take so much shit out of context by the way as a guy who's a prolific movie pontificator and bullshitter (laughs) even those guys got to chill out a bit But any last thoughts on the Overlook, Alex? No, I mean, I think that that's like the most relevant thing is this to me, the vastness of it and the lack of need of geography. But, you know, another great point that you make is that these little continuity errors and stuff like that, that people might read into, like, we don't care. So to me, that's like not necessarily we, but like, I think as the audience, we don't care because we're so enraptured in the story. But you're right again, the overlook itself is the break from reality. So I think that's probably the thing that's most prevalent and most interesting is that we're just, we're sitting in whatever reality. Like that's the thing that's so awesome about this movie is that whatever reality Kubrick has concocted for us is what we're sitting in. It has nothing to do with actual reality. Yeah. And that brings me to, to the next thing I want to discuss is um, the actual ghost of the overlook. Now I find this to be one of the things that on this viewing I was trying to wrap my head around more, right? Because, again, I might be jaded. So I'll say out front, if you read the books, a lot of the things, right, that you see in the the film are often images from the book. And when Jack goes, right, he finds, or, uh, you know, Tor- Dan- whatever his name is, Jack Torrance, whatever the character's name is, right? He goes down in the basement and finds all these old newspaper clippings. So the Overlook has had this long history of disasters, right? Right. gangsters getting shot you know uh all this kind of stuff right so the overlook has this long history of horror 
in this movie, it seems to me they tell us there is one horrific incident that happened here, right? And it was Grady murdering his entire family. Right. So one instance of horror. Then as we cut through the film, we see the the blowjob room, room 237, the bloody elevator, the skeletons in the lounge, and the gold room, right? So there, there's a lot of ghost happening around. I found it interesting this time in two ways is one i don't know who these are supposed to be and two uh something i never really picked up is that halloran says that these ghosts should be things that only a person who shines sees, right that only a person who shines sees these images right so is there anything about the ghost that you know is jumping out at you this time <sighs> nothing regarding to like what Halloran says where like only people who shine can see them like I think that the house itself and like the ghosts don't necessarily I think they have the power to reveal themselves to people when they want to I think that's like the bigger that's the bigger more like mythological thing about this story itself is that ghosts have the power to do whatever they want it's the people who are choosing to ignore them. You know, like there are people who are going about the, like Danny and they, it kind of, it's interesting because there's a lot, there's so much, we watch Dr. Sleep too. So there's so much that like kind of reverberates back, but like, yeah, Dr. Sleep feels like it's, <laughs> whereas this movie's all kind of imagery and subtle, you know, artistic choices. <laughs> Dr. Sleep is just the most strap on your work boots. We're solving this shit movie. Right. That I've ever watched. And not in a bad way. No, I'm not, not saying that. I love Dr. Sleep. So I think like <laughs> the, thi the thing that I'm kind of like, the thing that I kind of gravitated towards this time was that Danny is in essence like a lightning rod for this. It's less about him being able to shine and more about him having been through trauma. All of them having been through trauma makes them suitable candidates. Like we don't know anything about what happened to Grady and his family. Like they might have been completely well-respected well people. Right. He also looked, we just watched an unsolved murder. We just watched an unsolved mysteries where this guy like murdered his entire family and everyone thought he was like the most upstanding gentleman ever. So yeah. like you never really know, but and I, that's, but, but getting back to that though, right? Grady is the inciting incident of the hotel in this, yeah. but they don't mention anything extra about him or why that matters. I mean, it might, it very well might not. It might just be, it might just be the clue we need to know, like, oh, so this is going to happen to Jack too? Got well, it. Great. <laughs> sometimes I wonder with Kubrick, right? Because people think he is such a master that it's impossible that every inch of every frame isn't an exact choice that matters perfectly. Right. <laughs> and like, you just know that's not true because I've watched a lot of behind the scenes documentary and there's a scene where he's just changing the shot in the, the you know pantry room where he's like oh if i lay under jack's legs i can get this shot like this right and he's just making it on the change flags it looks cool but everyone's gonna be like oh, oh, that means whatever you know moon landing theories or whatever <laughs> but i do want it's kind of how john lennon talked about bob dylan where he's like he just says nonsense words together and you guys think he's a poet right sometimes i do <laughs> but i i have a theory about grady t i'll go ahead and hit you with this right watching it this time I actually think this movie is Danny Torrance's revenge on his parents. I think every ghostly kind of thing we see in the hotel is somehow manifested 
through Danny into Jack's mind. Okay, it's interesting you say this because I don't totally disagree with this theory. And right, I'm at least not yet. I'm sure you'll say something that I completely disagree. <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna let you hang yourself before but I go. All the way it's up. interesting you say this because this is the first time I've really paid attention to the beginning of this movie because I realize mm-hmm. I skip. I, it's not that I skip over it. I just like almost blank it out a lot of the time. Yeah. Like other than well, the before ha- you have a family, you're just like man. Well, other than Dick Halloran, like, I don't pay attention to, I don't really, I've never really paid attention. So, like, Danny and Tony speaking in the bathroom, Tony Mm -hmm. warns him, I don't want to go there. Like, and he won't tell him why. He won't even show him anything. Yeah. Like, and I think that's a really fast, so I think that's a really important aspect because Danny doesn't really withhold a lot from his parents. Mm-hmm. Like he at least not from his mother. Like his mother seems to be in tune with a lot of shit that goes on with Danny. So it's weird that Danny brings them up there. So I guess my question to you to redirect it would be: Do you think it's Danny's curiosity that's pushing him towards the house? Do you think it's Dick Halloran pushing him towards the house, thinking maybe Danny can clean the house himself? No. What what my theory is is I think the overlook part happens organically, right? I think there is a chance that the Overlook has no ghost itself, right? That this is something that Danny then manifests, right, later in the film. Now, obviously, Dr. Sleep goes back and says, fuck you, Griffey, to all of this, right? But I'm going to lay out some things I saw in the movie that make me think this. Because one, I I started off, it's one of those questions I just never asked myself reading the book or the movie. But it's like, who the fuck is Tony? Right. And later he's like, oh, Tony's what I used to call the shine. And you're like, no, it's not the shining. It's some entity within himself that he feels like he's conversing with. Right. Right. The shining is kind of a vehicle or a conduit, not an entity. Right. So to me, when Jack Torrance snaps his arm, right, and essentially murders this family in the illusion of family. Right. Here is this guy. Right. This dad who is supposed to be your protector a role model, all that. And he turns that ferociousness on you and hurts you, right? I think Tony manifests at that point. And that this is Jack's ki- or Danny's kind of body saying, not only now do I just have this shine where I'm extra perspe- perceptive and whatever, this becomes somewhat a defensive moment. Oh, yeah. And I think Tony and The Shining realize being isolated with Jack as this family is dead is a big fucking problem, right? And yeah. him not being able to confront his mom because one part of the movie that struck me this time is it does it all feels more personal than it should you know like this isn't some ghost who's like ah you're here at the overlook i want to you know get you for whatever ghosts want to get you for right we're going to add you to the menagerie or whatever this feels very pointed right so when i watched room 237 i think danny chooses that room Danny's the first one who brings it up. He brings it up to Halloran and says, what's in that room? And he's like, nothing. Don't go up there. Why are you messing with that? So we're led to believe that Halloran is trying to tell us something's going to happen up there, right? But he goes all the way to Miami, flies all the fucking way back in a blizzard. uh, And he told this kid, don't go in there. Don't think about, hey, super strong, shining guy. Don't defend yourself against it. Like he doesn't say hey, don't go in there. There's a melted titty lady in there. Gross. <laughs> like, also, keep your paw away. Hey, when you find that room key, fucking chuck it in the maze. Why does Halloran not tell him? 
because I don't think that that specific room is this kind of womb of evil, right? I think that there's a part of me, and this is like the really conspiratorial Griffey, when we see the scene, right, where Jack has, the, again, a classic moment that married couples know. He's like, you ruined my flow. You came in here. I was writing. And he wasn't. He's like, now I have to get back. In. I was just like, wow, this is sadly relatable. I need to change my behavior. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when Danny comes in, right, why did they not show us Danny seeing any apparitions or any figures? Danny we, comes walking out. There is a chance that, like Jack said, Danny did that to himself. We, oh, are you talking about – oh, you mean when he goes in the When he comes walking out sucking his thumb and his shirt's a little ripped and he's got the bruises, there is a chance. Like, why is that the one ghostly experience and encounter that we don't see in the film? I mean – Why would Halloran not warn him about Room 237? Okay, let's go down this rabbit hole then. Let's think about that. Yes. So if – Danny did it to himself. Mm-hmm. Is Danny trying to get Jack in trouble with Wendy? Is Danny trying I, to finally drive the final nail in the coffin so that he, they don't have to be together anymore? I, I do think that's part of it. And also I think there is this kind of, it's almost Virgil walking Dante through hell, right? Like I will make you feel as you've made me feel right. Okay. Uh, you can do this. I think what Jack sees in room two, three, seven becomes really important, right? Why is there just a naked lady in the bathtub, right? And then all of a sudden she melts. Because that is what Jack thinks he wants, right? I should be out here racking up (laughs) tall model-esque ladies because I'm Jack Torrance, right? Guy who looks like a Wolverine cosplayer but schlubbier, right? He thinks he needs that. So when he walks in the room, Danny – this is the other thing that they don't really address a lot. Danny's always playing dumb with his parents in this movie, and he can 100% – read their fucking thoughts right right so i think danny starts reflecting things back to jack and giving him this kind of nightmarish inversion of his fantasies right so he thinks uh you know here's a lady who would just love to get pounded all the time and won't talk and you know won't have kids with me and won't ruin my writing and then as soon as he takes the bait right what happens that fantasy fucking rots Right. You know, because that's well, not his wife. That's not his mom. I think Danny is pushing a lot of these images into Jack's head. I think that's why we do those slow hold slash kind of gentle push ins on his face is because that is Danny sending. And again, I'm not saying that Danny's doing this like some kind of Kaiser Sose. This could be just a subliminal attack. Hmm. I. I'm almost with you because here's another example of this, right? When Jack is stuck and he's like drooling, looking out at the snow, right? He sees them in the maze. He sees them in the maze. Right. And we see this like little people walking. Right. Right. I think Danny is projecting that to him, right? This, this sense of loss and loneliness and pushing him. I think all of the things we see essentially I'm, are this path right, to start breaking. I'm Jack almost down. with yes, you. Go. I'm okay. almost with you. Because there is logic to what you're saying, finally. Like, rather than just be some (laughs) weird theory, there's a lot of logic. If you're talking about my Hammond theory, you know that shit is legit. (laughs) There is. there's No, but there is, like, I think there is a serious, sincere, emotional logic to this Mm -hmm. theory. Because, yes, children are, like, but 
I'm going to take it a step further. Children, like okay. you said, children are not in control the way that we would like them to be. Right. Much like Danny Strunes, Jack's papers, and finally, like, you know, Jack snaps his arm. Much like that kind of thing, Danny's not in full control of like, because as we find out, like, because we never really find out how powerful Dick Halloran is as someone with these yeah. psychic abilities. So, yeah. to me, and I'm going to amend this, Danny's not a lightning rod. What I think, what I think it is, is Danny is actually an antenna. So Danny's ability, Danny doesn't, Danny doesn't realize that he can broadcast. Danny himself is broadcasting everything into the house. All right. the psychic, all the terrible psychic energy lives in the house. And I mm. wouldn't say that necessarily the house feeds off of it. They just broadcast okay. from it. I don't. Okay. So here's, here's one of my, my breaking points, right? One of the things I really love about this is we see this a lot with, Jack and Danny, right? When they're by themselves, we'll have this kind of fantastical, it almost sounds harpy music, right? Mm -hmm. And when Wendy comes in and it's like, hey, hon, how's the riding? Want to go for a walk? And he loses his shit. The moment he addresses her, hard fucking cut right. from the music, right? Now he is back. And when I think Wendy is the reality anchor of the film, totally. right? It's the same thing. When we see Danny and Jack in one of the, the great scenes of the movie, right, is when he calls Danny into the room. And Danny is between the two dads, right? And he walks up. Why is he saying the things he's saying? He's like, oh, you want to hurt me and mom, would you? And then his next reaction is, did she tell you that? And he's like, no. Right. But he know. I mean, he has to know that's what he's thinking. Well, it's like the scene He of knows doubt. his fucking... So, like why is he asking him these things out loud that he already knows the answers to? Because, but it's not antagonizing. Like, because right, I don't think that's an antagonizing thing for a kid. It's, right, but, and I don't think it is because I think him and Tony are separated. Right. I, right? Think, I don't think he's, like, the mastermind. Right. I think it's genuine curiosity because, like, having now watched both movies, it reminds me a lot of Abra's persona itself in Dr. Sleep where – this is a version of Danny who's willing to ask those questions, willing to be like upfront with an adult in power like that and say, like, would you do this to me? Like, are you yeah. capable of that? I know that you I know that you've already done something. Right. But was it because you were upset or are you just capable of that kind of anger? Right. And, and to me, that's that's what I kept getting caught on is he knows that his dad would hurt him. Right. And he knows in his mind that his dad is unraveling. And if. For one fucking second, he imagines that his dad, if his dad is really seeing the things that we are told that are Jack's visions, right? Even though the Jack, Jack doesn't really shine. I find that hard to believe but that I he doesn't see it and be like, hey, mom, fuck, we're in trouble. I got to tell you, though, I don't know. Him not wanting to help his mom in this movie is a big red flag to me. But I don't know that Danny knows that he's doing it. And again, I agree. I think Tony is somewhat piloting the ship and he's saying, hey, your dad is going to hurt you. And he's like, no, no, no. And then Tony is pushing this further and further and proving it to Danny. Tony, the the leftover remnants of the pre family life mm -hmm. knows that the only way this is going to end as decently as possible is for the dad to be gone. Right. And the mom to finally, I do think a part of this is breaking the mother too, right? I think Wendy needs to go through these things because even when he, Jack is walking her up the stairs, she still is, I'm just confused. Right. And again, not like 
a, I mean, that's a really big moment for any character to try to process. But I think it is an important moment sure. that she needed to get to. And Danny knows that. Right. Or, and it, on well, Danny or Tony. Knows I, well, that, yeah, right? I think that, yes, I would say it was definitely a it's a it's a push like yeah. Danny slash Tony are constantly pushing this to the breaking point the whole time, but only subconsciously. There's no I don't think there's any yes. ill will in Danny Torrance's mind right. towards his parents. But yeah, I think Tony, obviously, because, yeah, you know, I mean, I think on a subconscious level, they absolutely failed him. The two of them combined failed him neither yes. of them protected him well and so i i know what people would say is that he's a traumatized child so maybe it's all shock and awe i don't think that's what we see in this movie i'm not sure him at the yeah. end in the maze he fucking knows what he's doing he's pretty coherent like here's a great when he slides down the window right he comes back in the fucking hotel he doesn't go up to try to save his mom because somehow he probably psychically knows she's still around. Why go there? Why hide? He can't. He can shine to Halloran all the way in Miami, but not a mile away on the snow snowcat. He wants these guys to come and have to. Pay. I think he uses Halloran a little bit in a sacrificial manner. I mean, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, again, why like, did he we're... not tell Halloran like, bro? X, <laughs> right? It does, well, like we it, never I, to know. me, but, there's weird see, things like that, that everywhere. Back, hang on, but that goes back to what we're talking about, which is that Danny is not, Danny is not in control of what he's able to do. Yeah, like Danny. No, no, no. I agree with that on some level. Yeah, Danny doesn't even want to. At the beginning of the movie, Danny doesn't even want to talk about what it is. Yeah, because Tony all says right. not to talk about it, but that means so, that Danny is not in control of what's happening to him at all times. Yeah, but here's a couple other little points, right? In the most crucial part of the movie, right, when he's coming out, one, again, I think Danny lets him out of the meat locker, right? I think that is 100% what happens because we see no other psychic phenomena that kind of moves around in this and that. I think Danny lets him out, right, or Tony. We cut back. Wendy has just fucking smacked him with a bat, thrown him in the pantry, right? Right. She's worried about her kid who's already been attacked in the hotel. When we go up to that room, she is fucking sleeping. Not like she passed out in a chair guarding the door. She's in bed. She put the blankets and sheets on and she's fucking sleeping. Not with her kid in bed. She's just sleeping. Wouldn't you be a little more alert than that? Perhaps Danny shuts her down. Here's another thing. If you know that your dad is coming to red rum your ass... Maybe wake mom up and tell her murder instead of screaming red rum. <laughs> like, what? And I think the mirror, everyone, you know, thinks about the mirror and you see red rum and it says murder. I think that is specifically telling us that Danny is trying to tell her and Tony is obscuring it as part of his game. Oh, yeah. No, this is a pure. I mean, this is a big part of I think there's a lot of uh, literal psychology going on there because. Yeah. You know, I think a kid sees it one way and an adult sees it another way. So if yeah. a kid sees red rum or if a kid maybe sees the word murder, perhaps it's obfuscated just by just because yeah. a kid can't handle that level of trauma. Yeah. Again, this also goes back to like. But what, he's he's been in the Tony form now for also this another part. He's been Tony right. for over 24 hours. Right. You know, he's been Tony since that scene when he's like. He's showing Halloran what supposedly happened to Jack in room 237. He's like drooling on himself. That's a long ass time for Tony to be in charge. And that red rum to me is Danny screaming out, 
mom, murder. And Tony is still kind yeah. of, you know, talking Tony, a lot. Of Tony's this. covering it because he knows that, yeah. again, Tony is the one who's pushing things. Danny is like the whole movie. Danny is just in the right. passenger seat. But Tony is Danny by nature, right? So it is like a, it's a distinction, but he is also a manifest. Here's my final. I like Danny by nature. That's good. Yeah. Oh, Danny by nature. That's his hip hop album when yeah, he goes bad. You down with OPP? After he starts baby killing in Dr. Sleep, he puts out his parental advisory album. All right. So this is my final thing that really hit me this time. We'll see what you think about this, right? I think. One, we see uh, Lloyd, right? Lloyd is the bartender. The yes. best bartender from here, Timbuktu, whatever. I believe that Lloyd is the manifestation of Jack Nicholson's father, right? I think Dr. Sleep makes that pretty clear right? in the movie, right? I think his dad was a drunk, which we – also, I'm kind of pulling that from the book. I've always thought Lloyd is him looking at the face of his father, and that's where this kind of – pomp and circumstance bar guy routine comes from right he, he wanted to be friends with his dad and he wasn't it was bad and alcoholism this and that there's something that struck me is so fucking odd about the grady scene this is my final piece of evidence i'll lay on you and see what you think so jack torrance is by himself having a fantasy about a parted crowdy or a crowded party bar right these are not people that he's partied with these are not people that probably have died in the hotel they look like the fucking pictures that are on every fucking wall that Danny's big wheeled through, right? So he goes in. When he Jack is the one who's having the fantasy, right? Why does Grady bump into him and spill that fucking orange drink on him? Why is a ghost clumsy and spilling things on you? Because Danny is manifesting Grady that he heard about only in rumor. And if you go back and watch them in that bathroom scene, I think the way he speaks is very strange. He talks about, yes, your son is a strong-willed boy. Your son has talents that you don't appreciate. That, to me, doesn't sound like Grady trying to protect the hotel or whatever they're telling us. That sounds like Tony admonishing Jack. Letting him in, that, I think, is his last chance to break this fucking horrendous cycle he's on. I think that is actually his lifeline moment. I don't think that is the cue to kill. I think that is Tony saying, if we're going to do this, this is your last chance to stop being a dick. And he fucking fails miserably. But that whole scene has always struck me as very off. You've always no. been the caretaker? Who was he the caretaker for? Danny. He's always been Danny's caretaker, and he fucking blew it. Well, I mean, this is my theory. <laughs> I got. I went too far for you. That's we, the one. Am I am I allowed to speak? Or we just listen? Is this Griffey pontificate? I hour? saw. I saw your exacerbated face. Exacerbated, not exacerbated for one. What did I say? Almost said masturbated. Um, I have lack of oxygen from spilling so many good theories. <laughs> yeah, I would go with a no. Um on that then, then what explain walk me through what you think happens in that sequence then like i said i think danny himself is an antenna of all this horrible psychic energy that's collected over the many years in this hotel i think that look i can't speculate what happened with the grady family because mm -hmm. i wouldn't know but 
yes, I think Lloyd is definitely Jack's father, 100%. But I think that like, I'm less caught up on the clumsiness of a ghost, for one. That's not really... again. That's strange. Again, that is strange. But I'm also never convinced... Like, ghost is such a weird term to use for this because like none of these characters appear as like ghost to me like that yeah that's grady's the only one who seems feasibly he could be in that hotel because earlier danny sees his daughter right that's your antenna everything about but nothing about the hotel screams ghost to me like there's nothing ghostly about this like in like these encounters are all psychic traumas so instead of it being a ghost story, instead of there being some sort of ghostly apparition, anything like that, all of this is about people's reflections of themselves. So to me, exactly. however, <laughs> this is not Tony projecting this. Because for one, I don't think it's Tony projecting and saying, all right, this is your last chance to not be a dick. Because Grady literally goads him into going out and doing it. That's the whole point of the scene itself. I, but that's what I think. I think this again is a mirror scene. We're in a bathroom. There's mirrors everywhere. I think what he's saying is pushing Jack. It's so obvious and on the nose that I think he's I, trying to make is, Jack see that this I, is not the path to this go This is wrong because you are trying to, <laughs> you're trying to absolve Jack Torrance of, you're trying to absolve Jack Torrance a little bit of no. some, a little bit. He's given a test and he fails. He still grabs the axe. Pushing this, but you're pushing blame further into Danny Tony's court. I would say that what this, what Grady is, what Grady's point, like that scene, the point of that scene is Grady. Grady is supposed to be Jack. He's talking to himself in a mirror. That's why they're in a fucking bathroom. That's why he's cleaning himself up. Because quite frankly. The point. Sorry, I just opened it. I forgot that he refers to it when he's talking to Lloyd. He refers to his wife as the old sperm bank upstairs. I just saw that in my notes. And I was like, this guy is the fucking worst. There's right. no sympathy for Jack Torrance. Right. But to me, this is Jack. Like, Grady isn't really there. Like, none of this stuff is actually happening. What's happening is Grady. What's happening is Jack's having a conversation with himself in the mirror. Because he's just been at the bar. He's just had another drink. He's looking at himself saying, like, is this really worth it to be this miserable if it means that I'm, like, a loving father or something like that? This isn't a moment where Danny – this isn't a moment to me where Danny or Tony are literally, like, this isn't a Danny versus Jack moment. What this is is a Jack versus Jack moment of saying, like, am I willing to be the person that I want to be? Am I willing to take the risk – that it requires to be that person, or am I just going to be Jack Torrance, ex-school teacher trying to be a writer? But who, what version of that am I going to be? Like this is much more a conversation between your ego and your id than it is a conversation between a father and a son. The conversation between a father and son happened at the bar. This is a conversation where someone has to finally address the demons within themselves and say, I don't know if I'm capable of being a good father. So, What's the right. next solution? What's the solution to that problem? And I, I think I think Danny and Tony are the conduit for that, right? Like at the end when they're running through the maze, besides just looking cool, it's another one of those moves that just doesn't quite make sense. You're like, okay, I get it, plotting, but then the more you think about it, but then you're like, him stumbling around that maze is the perfect visual ending for a story about a dad who abused his son. Danny has now absolutely locked him in 
to the kind of world that Danny has had to live in after he was abused, right? Giant walls you can't see. It's because this you watch Nicholson in that, and you're like, all you have to do is turn around and just follow footsteps. Any path with footsteps. He could have walked out. Yeah, he can't see Danny's. He could still see his own. He could walk the fuck out. But he so desperately wants to plant that axe into his child. And that is something that Danny would know and was able to use. That I I think a lot of that, the really, the really outlandish one that I'm going to try to prove someday. Because <laughs> the thing that I was wondering, because I think he's also giving his visions to Wendy, right? I think she sees things that let me know that he's also wanting her to see some stuff, right? And I have this theory. She wants, she wants him to see a party guest blowing a bear. Yeah. I think that is supposed to be her husband in the dog mask <laughs> blowing some social elite. I think that is Jack Torrance's <laughs> maybe initial sin is that she's like, wait, you blew someone? I think someday I'm going to find evidence to say that that is Jack Nicholson under that mask. And that maybe even going to the Overlook, he's he's selling out to the man. Because that guy kind of looked like an older Ullman. Yeah, so maybe I mean, it's I mean, Jack in hey, a, a dog mask blowing an Ullman. I think I'm going to be able to crack that yeah, one Yeah, I bid you good luck on that. I would say, actually. <laughs> That's my furthest out. That's That one is, is going to take some work. Yeah. But like, here's a question. Because you actually have to Why find the Why the guy with his it. head split open? What's that? Why the guy with his head split open? Because to me, I think that is danny showing her what jack will look like down the road is he'll always just be this old injured hurt you know drunk like what a great party well like why that guy it uh, that's what i think I, a I lot of these that. i think the honestly, skeletons the, are her being a, judged by other people honestly there's a part of this there's parts of this movie where i'm just like well that's just probably kubrick i'm like well that's fucking cool we should just throw that in the flick like, no, no, no. I, I absolutely agree that I think sometimes he just did that, but we all think, oh, he had a 200 IQ. He can never just say skeletons are cool. Like, you know, like, I mean, they are. <laughs> guys, look, I, I'm going to put it this way. There are guys with 200 IQ that I bet also masturbate. And probably there's, you know, there's just. Everyone does. Exactly. We're not here to be shamers of that behavior. I'm not. I'm not saying. OK, again, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Quit putting fucking words in my mouth. Shut up. <laughs> What I'm saying is that everybody with a 200 IQ has at least one weird lowbrow thing. So if Stanley Kubrick's going to do anything <laughs> weird and lowbrow in a movie, it's definitely going to be a bear blowing a party guest. Skeleton kink. All I'm that. sure it actually, I'm sure it means something, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I would actually say the hedge maze, like the ending of that movie. Yes, there is the logical step of just following footsteps around. But I would say the reason it doesn't take place is simply because Jack is it's not because Jack's possessed it's not because Jack is mm -hmm. an idiot it's not because Jack it's Jack is blinded by the rage of yeah. wanting to be proven right like the whole movie he has to spend in this like sort of like puppy dog like this puppy dog pose of trying to like cover his tail like covers puppy you know, dog pose stop <laughs> just stop <laughs> you know what fine whatever <laughs> No, like, <laughs> it's fine. You you made your point. I'm sure we all get it. No, like, he has to sit there with his tail between his legs, like, the entire yeah. movie. So yeah. the opportunity he has blinds him so terribly that literally, I mean, you could really, I mean, he could just take the snowcat down the mountain himself. Like, he could do anything. Yeah. 
he could he could just leave. Like, there's nothing <laughs> stopping him. Like, I read a his great reputation. Pro- I read a great production. He doesn't want to fail again being a caretaker. Of course, he doesn't want to fail anything. Yeah. But he also doesn't want to fail being a father, even though he's already failed. He thinks he hasn't yet. He totally has. There's so yeah. much of that aspect of the story that's important that I think ultimately him getting lost in the hedge maze is less about getting lost and more he's so des he's so desperate to be proven right and that is like the folly of that's the folly of any like parent i think because you're never going to win an argument with your kid unless like they're old enough where you can actually do it i can tell you right now i've argued with a one-year-old at least four times today and i've lost every single time i always end up picking him up giving him a treat (laughs) or putting him to bed like those are the only things i like i never win Actually, I can tell you right now, during this pod, my kid screamed for half an hour. My wife put him down, and she's like, I think he just was out of routine. And it's like, it doesn't matter. He just won. They just get tired, yeah. They just get tired. <laughs> like, but that's what it is. Like, you, you as a parent, you as a father, you, like, you as a partner or a husband so badly want to be proven right. Like, you did the right thing. Yeah. You, helped, you stood by your family. You did X, Y, and Z. You went the length. You went the distance. I think at the end of the day, that's why he stays in the hedge maze because yeah, he could easily walk out. He stays in the yeah. hedge maze though, because he wants to be right. Whether it's to the death or not, that's the most yeah. important thing. And that's like the folly of Jack Torrance is the need to be right. The need to be appreciated. The need to be uh, yeah. the one. And he is left empty and growling in the cold, hard truth and is frozen. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, <laughs> I do also think that again, he definitely sacrificed Halloran, Danny, that is, because when Jack axes him, he screams, supposedly feeling the pain. So, you know, that bitch was psychically connected and didn't say, hey, my dad's limping around with an axe. I'm just saying Danny did it. Well, uh, I, also I had think... two more things I want to cover with you. Yeah. Uh, explain to me what the blood in the elevator means to you, because Danny sees it twice, oh. I believe. And then Wendy sees it at the end. I think when Wendy sees it, it's real. I've always thought that real. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Okay. Give Um, me, give me your thought on that. I mean, to me, it's the accumulation of all the evil psychosis in the entire place. Like that to me is the, that's the, that's the psychic energy finally unleashing. Like that's Jack's hatred for both of them. Finally, just like letting go. Like it's totally over. That's why he goes in the hedge maids in the first place. Like there's a methodical approach. And look, to be honest with you, the fact that Jack can't hack through a fucking door is pretty embarrassing. He's not doing it. <laughs> We're calling out his muscles now. What a poon. Well, it's funny. Like, actually, I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you read any of these production notes, but like I read that when they the original prop door they had, Jack Nicholson used to be a like fire, mar- a fire marshal. So he actually was able to chop it down in like three hits. And they had to like redo it and make him like go. Had to go get him some manly ass wood, yeah. (laughs) But like that to me is a really simple thing. And I mean, again, like I think like all you got to do is hack at the doorknob. That's the end of it. And it's fascinating to me that Jack like spends uh, Jack spends a lot of time trying to like get at Wendy, and he totally could. There's a methodical approach. So when Wendy runs downstairs, she sees the elevator doors open and all this blood rushes out. That's the real rage and hatred. Mm-hmm. that she's finally experiencing that's what i think actually traumatizes her i think to me you can really and again i'm going to dr sleep like you can she could get over a lot of the stuff like she could get over a, she could not get over it but like she can get past 
a shitty husband, shitty position, a shitty experience. But that hate come coming flowing out, storming out of doors that can't be closed easily. Yeah, that is that's that's the image to me. Right. Is yeah. it seeping through closed doors? Yeah. Where it's this family can lie and try to lock these things away. Yeah. But it's gonna find its way out, and when it does, it's a gusher. It's right? the rage. Like, it's almost like for Jack, it would be like almost orgasmic. He's like, "Finally, I get to do murder." Yeah. Woo! You know. And Absolutely. for the rest of them, yeah, it's just this slow leaking, and the way it moves the furniture, it's just like this is gonna clear out all of these things that you believe. I I love that. Obviously, one of the most iconic images. All right, to wrap this up, there's one thing, and this definitely doesn't square with my theory all the way. Um. The final image, Jack in the picture from July 4th, 1921, oh, which would man. have been 50 some years ago, right? Uh, he's It's mentioned to him once or twice, you've always been the caretaker, you've always been here. Mm-hmm. Do you assign, what do you assign uh, to that picture at the end of the movie? I think that's the house taking him. That is the house, like, right. that's the house. So you believe that that is an addition to the Overlook and not that that picture actually existed the whole time? Oh, no, I think he, that picture exists in, that picture exists the whole time, but it's, uh, yeah, like, it's 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 a manifestation. I mean, Jack dying there means that he is owned by the hotel. So him always See, being I wondered that because Grady's sense. not in it. Yeah, because if Grady was in the picture, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, he's collecting. The Overlook's collecting. Right. Yeah, I was trying to figure... To me, I was wondering... The way I was watching the movie by the end and getting all conspiratorial, I was like, that is Danny's final image, right? Is that he was looking at all the pictures of these party goers, and his mind is what put Jack in that picture. I mean, to me, actually, I think that the house forgets Grady after jack shows up that's why they keep saying you've yeah, always been the caretaker always here. been and so that's why i didn't know because it felt like to me they were saying that if you look at it from more of this is kind of a hellscape look right that some shitty person like you has always been here right the the family murderer the bad guy <laughs> someone's always been here so grady and jack become kind of the same just avatar for well, failure yeah i mean well but again, to choose like, jack's face well, how's this too? Think about it this way: at the beginning of the movie, Jack mentions that the people in Denver never brought up the Grady issue. It right. only is talked about in the hotel. So, to me, there's a very real chance that perhaps this is the psychic energy filtering into even uh, the general manager Ullman and him telling the story simply to assign simply to assign some sort of weird psychic uh imprint for jack to say like oh so there was someone here before me there wasn't it's also being puppeted nice oh i like that yeah it is funny too because a lot of the room 237 conspiracies all fall around like the middle manager who comes in during the interview and they're like oh he's satan he's the oppressed like masses blah 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 and it's like he really is just every middle management guy is like oh this fucking asshole yeah i'm gonna have to deal with this guy which by the way (laughs) Which, by the way, the best part about that is that, that, like, that's one of my favorite, like, bits about Room 237 where I'm like, geez, these guys are just, like, wearing tinfoil hats. Is like, that character right. got fucking cut out of, like, European cuts. Yeah. Like, nobody even to gave a fair, shit. To be fair, well, I think they show it in Room 237. You're like, oh, that's a good point. And then you watch it and you're like, he's just a guy who hates his job and everyone he works with. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like the context of the film throws out almost everything about him. <laughs> yeah, imagine being the, no, I, imagine uh, <laughs> being the gopher manager at a fucking hotel like that. Yeah, I'd hate my life yeah. too. Well, that's why they're like, oh, he's like oppressed, Matt. Because when he's like, hey, can you go get that mountain of furniture? He's like, fine. And I was like, that's just a dude who hates his job. We've all been there. Yeah, it's fine. I get it. That's the most relatable character in the whole movie. <laughs> but yeah, I think to wrap this up, right? I just what I love about The Shining is that it creates probably my favorite haunted house atmosphere. Um. It is one of those movies that constantly is reminding you that it is a piece of art. Yes. So it doesn't worry about realism or authenticity as much as just capturing big swelling emotions and fears in my body in just this constant way. If you look at this movie, this is one of those movies where it's like you could pull probably 50 to 100 frames of this movie and people would be ecstatic to hang them on their walls. Totally. it's just wildly iconic, and I think it's because rather than focusing on a real married couple, you know, all the Stephen King things, what they did was they just made this really blanket scary film that we can all find ourselves being drawn into Danny's elaborate ruse. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. I just I love every fucking thing about this movie. Yeah. And again, I love that it is one of those movies that you can put your tinfoil hat on. You can do as much in the Overlook Hotel as you want. Yeah. I mean, it's a movie that asks for it because it's so wide open as the hotel is itself. You can kind of just assign whatever story you want and, you know, come up with whatever theory makes sense to you. And also, like, again, this is the theory we have this time. Like, imagine watching it two years from now and thinking something else entirely. Like, that's the benefit of this movie itself is it asks you to do that. I mean, the best example I can give of why I love this movie is – the story Stephen King always tells about why he hated the original of ad- the adaptation, which was <laughs> he got a call from Stanley Kubrick from London at three o'clock in the morning. He asked him a story about Jack's motivation in a scene. And Stephen King gave a very thoughtful answer as to why the story he gave, he's even explained like what methodology he used to write it. Stanley Kubrick went, nah, I don't think that's true. And hung up the phone. Like, <laughs> That to me is the best that to me is the best way to explain how good The Shining is because the the writer director of The Shining went up against the writer of the original book and was like I think I can do this better actually but not even better like I'll just do it differently right. and it'll probably work just the same and it does in a lot of but ways But it's that that conflict right of one of the best horror writers of all time and one of the best filmmakers of all time really fighting and you kind of get this distilled amazing amalgam of the two of them absolutely i, I just I, I find this movie endlessly fascinating uh probably two years from now i'll find a way to believe wendy did it yeah uh you know we'll come back when i have that theory worked out uh that's it guys for the shining we're closing the doors on the overlook but only we? <laughs> for a moment yeah come back tomorrow and we're talking about dr sleep uh the shining sequel that i thought there was no way could work but is fucking fantastic. Um, again, guys, a horror movie every day this month. Go back and find the movies we've already released and uh, subscribe so you'll get all the new ones. Shout us out on your socials. Email the show, filmalchemistpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can see our faces on our YouTube channel, Nerd Alchemist. That's plural with an Bye. S at the end. And please take a second and leave us a rating and review wherever you find the show. We appreciate it. We know it's a lot of movies this month, guys, but we hope you're enjoying the uh, Sojourn as much as we are. Uh, and also, yeah, feel, feel free to de- deluge Alex's social medias with hashtag Griffey was right. 
He'll love that. For the film alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm uh, Alex Dandino in my last show. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Like the Torrance marriage, it's fucking done.